Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Danny LaRue is in the building. We are going to run through all 15 teams in the Western Conference and what they did this offseason, all the moves they made. Did they get better? Did they get worse? What does the Western Conference look like heading into the 2020-2021 NBA season? Danny, how you doing, man? Doing pretty well. I, I I can't I can't really complain. Um, I am a little bit concerned about how rapidly we're going to try emphasis on try to move through this, but we'll do our best. Oh, I'm concerned about how rapidly the NBA season is trying to move through uh, this 2020 <laughs> 2021 season. So we uh we shall press forward regardless, just because that's what we do here, Danny. Uh, how are things going in San Francisco for you? I mean, California is in, in our, our new lockdown, but I, I, you know, like my life is fortunately relatively manageable under, under these circumstances. And I think the people around me are doing a good job being safe. So no complaints. That's great. Yeah. Uh, obviously in a bit of a different circumstance here in Australia, uh, in regard to safety, but I don't think we need to dive into that just, uh, to make the American listeners here jealous. So Danny. Let's dive in and we're going to go in alphabetical order here. Uh, we're not going to, you know, go story by story. It's just easier for listeners to find the teams that they're looking for if we go in alphabetical order. So we're going to go Dallas, Denver, Golden State, Houston, Los Angeles Clippers, Los Angeles Lakers, Memphis, Minnesota, New Orleans, Oklahoma City, which will take a while trying to just navigate all of the things that oklahoma city did this year uh the phoenix suns next portland trailblazers sacramento kings san antonio spurs and then the utah jazz will close us up so danny the way this will go is i'm just going to read off a list of transactions that each team did to introduce uh our discussion and then we'll just talk about it for a little bit so uh let's start with dallas dallas Drafted Josh Green, Tyrell Terry, and Tyler Bay. They traded Seth Curry for Josh Richardson and the pick that they used to select Tyler Bay. They brought back Trey Burke on a three-year, $10 million contract. Uh, Willie Cauley-Stein opted out and then was re-signed to a two-year, $8 million deal with a team option. They signed Wessel Wundu at the vet minimum. Uh, obviously, Tim Hardaway opted into that $19 million player option. And then uh, they also re-signed J.J. Barea at a one-year deal at the veteran minimum. So, Danny, uh, what is your thought on Dallas? Because it was a very simple offseason, but I also uh, really liked the big move that they made. I liked the big move as well, and, and that is a little bit surprising considering I am a fan of Seth Curry and I thought he fit in well with Luca. You know, the idea of somebody who is point guard sized but doesn't have to have the ball in his hands all the time. That is something that describes Seth Curry. But I really like Josh Richardson there. I thought that he was miscast last year on the Sixers. They had this weird lack of a half court creator, and that's not what Josh Richardson is best at. And so I think that in his defensive Capability. I think that's one of the kind of through lines of Dallas's offseason that I like is they brought in some defenders. And so overall, I think they did a good job. The, the, the challenge for me that is different from you is that I'm not ready to evaluate their draft picks. And that will be an important part of how their offseason is, is evaluated long term. But in, in terms of the players that I know, I think they did well. 
Well, and hilariously, in the middle of talking about this, one minute ago from Tim McMahon, uh, the Mavs plan to release J.J. Barea on Thursday. Mark Cuban knew this move was likely when Barea signed a one-year $2.6 million deal last week, but he wanted to reward him for his impact over 11 years with the Mavericks. How about that? Good. This is how you engender goodwill around the NBA, Mark Cuban. I like it. Yeah, and I mean, now maybe J.J. Barea is going to be an extremely high-paid assistant coach. <laughs> You know, I paid with his NBA salary. Um, it, w- it wouldn't shock me if they do that. And it, it kind of seemed like Berea was going to be the odd man out. Remember that Dallas had 16 guaranteed salaries. And so it kind of made sense that Berea would be, would be the one when they added so many guards, you know, that, that he, he could be the one. And, and Wes Wundu they gave a two year deal to. And so you wouldn't expect it to necessarily be him. And also this, this kind of has the Mavericks trying to build that culture idea you know like with with Dirk and everything else and so it's not a surprise and I I like I like Bray even even up to like I was uh, how quickly he got back after his injury but this is the right decision it's no doubt the right decision uh it's just one of those deals that engenders goodwill uh for your organization from the player body at the end of the day so Uh, so the question uh, I want to ask you because you know these guys better than I do at this point sure is Josh Green and Tyrell Terry, more their fit within the current Mavericks and what Rick Kyle does, because we have a pretty good understanding of that, rather than how they are overall as prospects. Like, I've heard really good things about Terry. It sounds like his conceptual fit is good. And then Josh Green, I mean, if he's, if he's a good player, it'll work. Yeah. So. Tyrell Terry is just like a little bit easier to talk about. So let's hit him first. Uh, it, it's kind of a, you know, less ready Seth Curry. Like, I thought that. Terry's most likely outcome was something similar to like Seth Curry, Steve Kerr, something like that versus a guy who was a true point guard. Terry is a genuinely elite shooter. I uh, don't have to worry about that. He's a really high level ball mover and passer who keeps things moving uh, within an offense. He's very unselfish, but has kind of a high handle and doesn't have a ton of burst and is very skinny. So I think it's going to take him some time uh, to be able to play anything resembling a point guard role. But I actually really, really like the fact that if you're going to move Seth Curry for Josh Richardson, which in a vacuum, I really like that move, uh, especially given the fact they also got number 36 in the deal, which they then used on a player that I don't love in Tyler Bay, but uh, to get an asset is valuable. Uh, getting a ready-made, not a ready-made replacement, but a potential long-term replacement for Seth Curry in Tyrell Terry, I think was just really smart business by Dallas at the end of the day. Um Josh Green is again a very high level defender on the wing, six foot six, six foot ten wingspan, has a great physical frame, loves to play, uh, on ball defense and is a pretty smart on ball defender, although he's going to have to grow there a little bit. A lot of Green's translation is going to come down to the shot. He shot 36 from three this year coming into uh, the NBA at Arizona, but I think the mechanics are a little bit worse than that, and I think it's going to take him some time to work through those, despite the fact that he has some legitimate touch. Interesting. Okay, so like, yeah, I could, I could see that eventually. You know that 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 could work out. Um, what, I have one other thing. What? Oh yeah. So one of the other interesting nuances, and we're not going to get to Philly in this, of the Richardson for Curry swap is the argument, which I would agree with, that the structure of their salaries actually kind of makes sense for both teams. So Richardson yeah. has a player option. I expect him to decline said player option and then become unrestricted, which helps Dallas's 
2021 aspirations should, you know, be honest and whatever, whatever they want to do. But then the other possibility there that I think shouldn't be discounted this far out is that if Dallas strikes out on other guys and Richardson works out, him being an unrestricted free agent means that if Richardson is a later remover than those other guys, that they could just bring him back. And so that is an, a nice part that they don't have to make a firm decision. They can kind of string it along a little bit if things work out. I think yep. that's a positive for Dallas. Yeah, and they did a really good job of clearing salaries in general this offseason. Uh, obviously, they also move the DeLon Wright deal as well, which is something I didn't note in the uh, intro here. But yeah, DeLon Wright does not play for the Dallas Mavericks anymore, and he was on what I believe is a three-year, $27 million deal, Danny. Is that sound right to you? Yeah, Um, second year of it. And they also got off Justin Jackson, but he had no guaranteed money after this year. Yeah, and it's just like kind of not. He's like a nothing burger to me as a player, unfortunately, for Justin. Um, If they could actually get off of the Dwight Powell money somehow this offseason – there's like a pretty real chance that they might be able to keep the Josh Richardson cap hold as well, right? Yeah, well, they can also cross that bridge if they need to. Like that, that is the, the sometimes I think teams get too aggressive. I'm not criticizing Dallas for this at clearing the space ahead of time when you can yeah. just do it if you need to. But yeah, I mean, if they, if the situation comes to pass that they need to clear that money and they also want to keep Josh Richardson, that should be potentially doable. Uh, depending on, though we should note that Richardson's cap hold is higher, but you know, there, there are different ways, different ways to thread that. The other weird part, and we just, we, this is something that we just won't know all the details is Dallas ended up in that three team trade where the DeLon Wright one, they traded DeLon Wright and Justin Jackson for James Johnson. Trevor Reza went to OKC in that same deal and is sitting on their roster somehow. So I don't know what it would have taken to get Trevor Reza instead of James Johnson, but I think Reza is a materially better player. Their contracts aren't really that different. Um, so it could be a mistake. The other thing that could potentially be a mistake for Dallas is keeping the powder dry for 2021. Now, that could work out brilliantly for them. But it, you know, in hindsight, and we won't have that hindsight until August of 21, that, you know, not using the full mid-level on a multiple-season player, not trading some of their expiring contracts for guys that are maybe better but under longer-term contracts. Like, those could end up being mistakes, but we won't know. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Uh, I think we should move on, though, because Dallas didn't do a crazy amount. And uh, Denver seems like a more interesting uh discussion here if only because they lose jeremy grant because jeremy grant signs an enormous deal with detroit that i talked about on uh one of the most previous podcasts with dave Dufour that we're a little bit dubious of uh they draft zeke naji at 22 they sign uh facundo campato to a two-year deal they give monte morris a three-year 27 million dollar extension in addition to signing campato which is a bit surprising because both of them are backup point guards in the NBA. They signed Jermichael Green to a two-year $15 million deal to essentially replace some of what Jeremy Grant gave them. They re-sign Paul Millsap to a one-year $10 million contract. Uh, they end up drafting RJ Hampton as well. They converted Bull Bull into a two-year $4.2 million deal. Uh, did they sign Isaiah Hartenstein as well? They did. Uh, and I believe that that's going to be everything for denver did i miss yeah. anything there uh they let they let tory craig go they also let tory craig go who signed in milwaukee that's right so interesting offseason 
for Denver. I guess that the first question I have for you is if you were Denver, Denver, it was reported, did try to match the Jeremy Grant three year, $60 million contract. Uh, how do you feel about Denver trying to match that contract? Cause I feel like they probably ended up in a better spot by just having Jamichael Green on this roster and then hoping that they can, uh, get starter level minutes from Michael Porter. It's challenging because if Denver had ownership that treated the team this good, this young as something rare that you treat by paying the luxury tax, then I would say you might, might roll the dice with Jeremy Grant, just because I think he's better and it's a bad, it's, you know, it's a bad contract, but good teams have bad contracts. Like that's the, that's the way it works sometimes. And the next thing we talk about will be one of those. And I, I think that in that circumstance, you know, it's, it's worth it. But if, if we're treating the hard, we're treating the luxury tax as a hard line or pretty close to it, then I think they, that Tim Connolly and his, and his front office did really well because Jermichael Green is a good player, came at a much cheaper price and manageable for the long term. I mean, you don't know if he's going to stick around after this year. And, Denver now knows very well that unrestricted free agents can be unpredictable. And so there's, there are challenges there. But I think that they, they bounce back well. I think that the, you know, I, I think Adam Morris, um, well, lockdown nuggets and various other things, DNVR did a really good job summarizing this that I don't think the, the overall moves hurt Denver that much in the regular season, but I think it hurts them in the playoffs because they are less versatile defensively. They, you know, like if things get more challenging around what do you do with Michael Porter, like if, especially if another team has a good wing scorer, that job probably goes to Jermichael Green. But they're still going to be a really good team, and they're, I guess, more cost-balanced than they were before. So I guess that with Denver, what it comes down to for me is, do you think that they should still be playing the long game, given the fact that Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray are both under contract long-term? Uh, Jokic has three years left, but do you see Nikola Jokic leaving Denver? Like I, I, there hasn't even been any discussion of that yet. Like I I don't really see it being a thing, right? I'm not super concerned about it, but you never know. I mean, that's the, for me, the third contract is when you find out what a player really wants. And I would say, I would say it's not the way I'm thinking, but that's happened before. (laughs) So I I think, and, and the other big key of that, and this is true of all of these negotiations as we think about the moving forward is if the team is competitive, it's going to be harder to pry them away. Yeah. That's the nugget. The nuggets should be competitive. So it'll be harder to pry them away. Yeah. And at the very, at the very least, they're going to be competitive, if not like outright contenders. Right. So I I guess that where I'm at is trying to figure out, should they be looking at this long term as we're going about this, waiting for Michael Porter to hopefully explode and become our third star with Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic? Or, and then hopefully like RJ Hampton and Zeke Naji become real players and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Or should we be trying to win a title this year when the Lakers look like a juggernaut and Milwaukee has drastically improved and everything? Like, I kind of think that they should be straddling both lines. But if we're doing like a 55% one way, 45% another way thing, I do think that they should probably be straddling still just slightly more toward the long term than the short term of going all in for a title contender now and signing Jeremy Grant would have really reduced the flexibility for them over the course of the next few years, I think. Yeah, it would have. And 
that is an argument in some ways that's more of an argument against trading for him in the first place you know like that that whole thing that you're ceding so much control to somebody who could leave of their own volition now they couldn't have seen exactly what happened coming and that i'm not criticizing Connolly for that but it is a it is a real challenge and i think really where the rubber meets the road there is what is the opportunity cost you know like what is going each way so in the in the Jermichael green Jeremy Grant kind of conversation. Maybe it's I, that is a, that is a large contract, but the difference does matter. However, here's the one the one kind of general thing I will say is that when a team is this good, and the Nuggets, you know, they've been one of the better regular season teams in the West the last couple of years, and they underperformed relative to their seeding expectations last year or two years ago, and then overperformed it this past year. Um, is that unfortunately? The general arc of things, I mean, so it can happen that the team blossoms, you know, there have been various examples of that, but it can also happen where something fells them, whether that is a departure in free agency or an injury or something. So my idea is basically always, if you're already really good, try to be as good as you can without burning too many bridges. So like, I wouldn't have supported trading Michael Porter Jr. for a rental, for example, but... If it's, you know, spend a little bit of luxury tax money to use the full mid-level exception, if you had the right guy, that I would, that's the kind of stuff I would do. The other kind of points worth bringing up here, uh, Facundo Campazzo, I think is just a perfect fit in Denver. Uh, he is an exceptional passer, ball mover, playmaker, uh, has long been one of the best point guards outside of the NBA. Uh, he is really, really really just dynamic as a passer. He's an unbelievable live dribble passer and he's going to fit so, so well within this ball movement, heavy offense. Like you're going to be able to play him next to Jamal Murray and play Jamal Murray off ball and just let him, uh, fly around the court and make a lot of different things happen. Uh, I think that Compazzo, I don't know that you're going to want to have him on the court to close playoff games or anything necessarily, just because he's very small and he is going to struggle defensively, but he is going to be a legit playoff rotation player because of the way that he processes and thinks the game at the highest levels is going to translate exceedingly well at those levels, in my opinion. An interesting kind of wrinkle with this is that Campazzo at $3.2 million a year for the next two years, and remember, because he's an older free agent and the NBA rules on this are so screwed up, he's restricted after that. Yep. That I mean, though he could play internationally if he didn't feel like the offers were sufficient. Um, that... Having a backup point guard who you don't really want as your starter at that kind of rate makes you wonder why you give another backup point guard who you don't particularly want as your starter nine million a year after this. But it is like Monte Morris. That's a deal that I don't love, but I definitely don't hate. It's a it's a challenge because like nine million for a backup point guard is for a very good one is totally fine. Yeah. But when you think about the the heart, like the, the, the luxury tax constraints potentially here and the doubt flight. I don't love, I love, I love Monte Morris in general. And then the story is amazing. I, I, how he blossomed into being a viable NBA player and more than that now is, is great. But I don't love him starting or closing games on a team with aspirations as high as Denver's. So that creates some problems just because that's, money that you can't allocate elsewhere unless you trade him or something else like that. So it's, it's not terrible. It's, you know, I, I, there were far worse contracts doled out this offseason, including some to former nuggets, but it's also the type of the, like the type of move that while far from terrible 
you might be sitting there two years from now being like, damn, I just wish we hadn't done that. And what makes Morris a little bit different, and it's part of what the contract stuff is so fun, is he was going to be unrestricted. And so I think Denver, sometimes they tie themselves in knots. They also almost always pay their own guys. But they, the idea of, oh, well, he could leave for nothing. And that's bad. It just They just got burned on it. But it, that's what gave Morris the leverage to make this deal happen. So I guess that my question there would be, I kind of think Monte Morris is more valuable now as a trade chip than he was prior to this Oh, I would agree. I would agree with that. But you you narrow the field of potential suitors, but you also make them more interested. Do you narrow the field though? Because like nine million dollars is actually a pretty good deal for Monte, and it's sub mid level money. You you narrow it down a little bit just because. Um, there's a, there's a group of teams that would that would roll the dice on the low cap hold, and you know with that oh if you could get Monte Morris and then have cap space and then you could come to some agreement you know kind of like not the current Joe Harris deal but the Joe Harris deal before where okay you 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 get you go to a number and then you can roll over and then you have your backup point guard locked in like that's the type of thing that certain teams just love but other teams are risk averse and don't want to do yeah that's a good point. Um- Better or worse? Do we think Denver is better or worse for this coming season than they were last season? Worse, but by less than some people think. Also worth noting, I think they committed an unforced error with Tory Craig. And, you know, like, oh, we had a roster crunch. Well, they chose Vladko Kanchar and Bull Bull and Isaiah Hartenstein over Tory Craig functionally. And that's a mistake. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Actually, I would have just cut Chanchar. And kept Tory Craig, especially losing Jeremy Grant at the end of the day. Um, Tory Craig is the kind of wing defender that they need on this roster still. I agree with you. Uh, it depends on are we thinking of Denver as the regular season team they were or as the team that made the conference finals. Uh, I would say they're probably going to be about the same because I would expect Michael Porter to take a leap uh, this season. Yeah, and but, remember, they also didn't have Will Barton in the bubble and Gary Harris was still working his way back. I mean, I think it's entirely possible that Denver is better as a team. I'm just thinking in terms of the net moves forward and backward of the personnel. Yeah, no, I, I think that's reasonable. But I, th- I think Denver is probably in about the same spot as they were uh, last year. So let's move to the team that you're closest to, the Golden State Warriors. Okay, they drafted James Wiseman, they drafted Nico Mannion, they drafted Justinian Jessup, who will be a stash. Nico Mannion, I believe, is on a two-way, right? Yeah. Um, They traded for Kelly Oubre into that $17.2 million trade exception. I think that they traded like a top 20 protected first rounder for that, right? Yep, otherwise Minnesota is 21 second. Okay. Uh, they signed Brad Wanamaker to a one year, $2.25 million deal. They signed Kent Bazemore to a minimum. Uh, they signed Axel Tupin and Dwayne Sutton to E10 deals. And I believe that they signed Caleb Wesson to an E10 deal as well. I would venture yes. that one of Sutton or, uh, Wesson are going to be on that other two way contract. And then the big one is obviously that they lose Clay Thompson. And that they gain a $9.3 million trade exception to try and uh, replace Clay Thompson. I mean, the Warriors, that the Clay Thompson injury is just devastating for a number of reasons, but it's devastating because it may cost us uh, a real year of contention from the Warriors uh, near the end of Steph Curry's prime. 
Yeah, it cost us a year of knowing what the post-KD Warriors really, really would have looked like. And we already lost one of those, but we knew that going in because Clay had already been hurt the first time. Uh, so I, in terms of evaluating their offseason, the Ubre acquisition is so fascinating because it's really how much do you value ownership's money? And if Joe Lakeup and Peter Gruber are willing to pay it, by all means. I mean, I think Ubre is one of the best players they could have acquired for that amount of trade exception. And, you know, the, yep. the cost was, you know, probably it's, it's probably a, a second round pick. I don't think the Warriors are going to have one of the 10 best records, given that, remember, this happened after the Clay Thompson injury. So I, I'm guess I, I'm feeling like that's not going to happen. It's possible, but not, I wouldn't say it's the most likely thing in the world. Um, and so Ubre helps and he, he'll probably be a starter, probably be a closer for them too, just depending on how everything shakes out. And then the other big decision, and this is so like when I was doing offseason grades, this is where I downgraded them, is choosing James Wiseman second. Like I had Wiseman second on my board, but the guy who I had first on my board was not drafted first. So those two decisions, I thought Ubre, as long as you're willing to pay the money, that's that's a very good decision. And then Wiseman, we'll have to see. Well, so here's the thing. I liked the Wiseman pick for them, uh, even though I like LaMelo Ball a little bit better in a vacuum than I like James Wiseman. Uh, Wiseman gives them something a little bit different as they move into a different era of basketball. Uh, I don't love the fit of playing LaMelo Ball next to Stephen Curry. And if they want to try and compete with Stephen Curry, which I think that they frankly should. Do you agree with that? Like they should try and compete yeah. even 2022, 2023 with Stephen Curry on the roster. But I don't think that's how you draft this team. I like you, you draft based on who you think is going to be the best player, not who's the best help for the 22, 23 Warriors personally. Yeah, I don't. I, I still would be considering trying to maximize that 2022, 23 window, given the fact that the we just don't know what the Warriors will look like after Stephen Curry. Like they might enter an extended rebuild. Uh, this is not exactly a consistent historical uh contender with the Warriors. They go through lulls uh, over the course of their history, as you know, as well as anyone, because you wrote the book on it. Yeah, it's true. Um, so I guess that I was okay with the Wiseman pick. And look, the thing with luxury tax is that you don't have to pay the luxury tax until the end of the year. If they find that they are not a playoff team, which I think is plausible. Like there's a chance that without Clay Thompson, this team is not a playoff team this year. Would you agree with that? Absolutely possible. Yeah. Like I think that they're probably like somewhere in the six, seven, eight, nine range, but it's very plausible that they don't make the playoffs despite the fact that Stephen Curry and Draymond Green are unbelievable at basketball. You can move this Kelly Oubre contract pretty easily and save yourself a lot of money. Like I don't think that that's going to be that hard. Right. And it, there's also, I mean, if it, BRI basketball related income drops below expectations, which we fully expect that it will, that's a weird dynamic right now. That's going to lower the Warriors tax bill because basically it changes a team's, you could call it, think of it, it changes their tax bracket. Yeah. And then the other part of it that I think is a positive for the Warriors with Ubre, again, if ownership is willing to spend is having his free agent rights, you know? So theoretically, if the Ubre experiment works really well, yep. you could bring him back. Now it will be, comically expensive unless they're moving on from somebody else that's on the roster, but it is a possibility. And so I, I think that the Warriors generally did well. I like Brad Wanamaker a lot. I thought that yeah. he was a worth a worthwhile addition for a little bit more than the minimum. Baseball at the minimum is, of, is of course, totally fine. Um, and I, so I think that 
I think that the Warriors did well overall. This is the kind of offseason that you kind of, I, I kind of think of this as a bully pulpit offseason where you use the advantages that you have over everyone else. And that's being able to sign better guys for the minimum than most teams and being able to use a trade exception, even though you're already expensive because you theoretically make more money than them, though the Warriors are not right now. But so what was so weird about that is they did all that right after Clay Thompson got hurt and they're maybe not that team anymore. Yeah, I mean, like a Clay Thompson or a Stephen Curry, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, Kelly Oubre, and then like one of Kevon Looney, James Wiseman at starting center is a totally solid starting lineup, right? Uh, then you bring Brad Wanamaker, Eric Pascal, Marquise Chris off the bench. Like that's a real eight man rotation. I worry about what happens when one or two of those guys get hurt, obviously, but this is this is a real team again. They're going to be fun to watch. They're going to be exciting, and we just have to hope that uh, the some of the magic with Stephen Curry continues going forward. Otherwise, uh, this could be a bit of a rough start for the Warriors uh, early in the season. Let's uh, let's go to Houston next. Speaking of rough starts, yes, uh, Mike D'Antoni steps down. Stephen Silas is the new head coach there. Uh, they drafted KJ Martin. Uh, they signed Christian Wood in like kind of a weird, convoluted. Uh, deal kind of thing do you know can you explain the details of the christian wood sign and trade yeah so basically um the rockets had just acquired trevor reza in that deal for robert covington that deal was robert they traded robert covington for reza the 16th pick in the draft and a future first then they traded a reza and the 16th pick to the pistons for an assignment so and they brought back christian wood who was signed and traded to them and they also the Rockets also got a future protected first, but we don't know. Like so that'll that'll convey, you know, at some point. They traded Robert Covington for two first round picks. They re-signed Bruno Caboclo, who is still two years away from being two years away. They signed Mason Jones to a two way contract. They signed Jay Sean Tate out of the NBL. Uh they lose all of, I believe, Damari Carroll. Tyson Chandler, Michael Frazier, Jeff Green, William Howard, Austin Rivers, Tabo Cephalosha, Gerald Green is back on a camp deal. And then a couple uh, of, well, I guess, what, a couple weeks ago at this stage, maybe 10 days ago now, they trade Russell Westbrook for John Wall and a first round pick. That is obviously the uh, enormous shift here. They also signed DeMarcus Cousins. It's going to be kind of a weird... This is just a weird roster that has potential to go totally off the rails within two weeks of the season starting. It's so strange because you kind of put all the basically they're kind of halfway through a process, but you don't know exactly what process they're halfway through because yeah. it could be it could be a total like a total teardown like that is that is a distinct possibility, but it's a total teardown where you're still paying John Wall a bunch of money and where. You know, you have Christian Wood, who I like, and I like the contract that Raphael Stone signed him to, which is which is a nice piece. Also, they Daryl Morey leaving and then Stone taking his place. That's another change that happened for the Rockets this offseason. But like, so the weirdest the weirdest part for me, and I think the answer might just be, duh, is the current team makes no sense. Like, for example. They bring in Christian Wood and they bring in DeMarcus Cousins, neither of whom particularly makes sense in a switching system, but that's really the only defensive scheme that you've ever played with James Harden. 
So you're like, well, what are they going to do? And the answer might just be, it doesn't matter that much, you know, like it, because yeah. the Rockets just aren't at that place. Or it might be what, and it might not be. Oh, because they're trading James Harden. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's happening right away. But it's, it's so it's it's kind of a weird circumstance to be in where I don't necessarily dislike any of the kind of personnel moves. You know, the getting they got good value for Covington. You know, they they gave up good value for him, and then they got it, and then they get, and then they got it on the return, and then. The Ariza Wood thing is a little bit weird just because they functionally gave up the 16 pick for this like weird Detroit pick in the future. How yeah. you feel about that kind of depends. But when you consider the hard cap limitations, I think that's a big part of why Houston did it the way they did. Um, and then, you know, on the margins and getting guys like Sterling Brown and Boogie, if he makes the team and Kenny Wooten and stuff, it's like, yeah, that's all, that's all totally fine. Um, and then the, the Westbrook wall thing is fascinating because. John Wall, I my argument would be the idea of John Wall is actually a better fit for the Houston Rockets than the idea of Russell Westbrook. It's just that the idea of Russell Westbrook is more frequently reality than the the ideal of John Wall. Well, we just have no idea what John Wall is going to look like. Right. Like we we can hear all of these things about him. He's killing it in workouts. He looks great. He looks awesome coming off of this Achilles injury, but like the Achilles track record is not great. And we just haven't seen John Wall in a very, very long time. So well, I don't remember know. that. The, sorry. The team that signed the team that knows the most about his current situation is the team that just traded him, which has to be a concern. Yeah, no, 100 percent. I think that's absolutely right. And yeah, John Wall's a slightly better shooter than what Russell Westbrook is and is a little bit more capable of playing off the ball than what Russell Westbrook is. There's a chance that this really works. And that John Wall and James Harden are one of the best backcourts in the NBA and that the Christian Wood leap was very real last year. And then you mix those two or those three with Eric Gordon and PJ Tucker. And then you get 15 minutes a night off the bench with DeMarcus Cousins and David Waba comes back from injury and like Sterling Brown looks really good, right? Like there's a world where some of this works. There's just so many moving parts to bet on. And then the big one is obviously that James Harden uh, does not seem happy there is maybe the way to put it. Uh, maybe when that's, he's there. <laughs> when he's there. Uh, so, yeah, like, I, I don't know what to this could go totally off the rails or it could actually work. Uh, they did well taking upside swings this summer. Uh, like, I like the idea of trading Russell Westbrook for John Wall and a first. Uh, I liked getting two first round picks for Robert Covington because I don't think Covington was quite as good of a fit for a switching defense as what Houston anticipated him being. But I don't know, man, like it, it's just kind of a mess, I feel like. And I it, it's hard for me to bet on Houston making the playoffs right now. You know what I mean? That's true. And at the same point. Even it's so funny, like if we end up seeing this like disinterested, half-hearted James Harden, I'm very fascinated to see what that looks like and how that's different because like his defensive effort has been inconsistent for a long time. I mean, yeah, they, you know, they do the switching thing and he actually does switch. So kudos. But the structure of their offense, I mean, I don't think he's going to be like passing off shots and like or intentionally missing or anything like that. So I honestly feel like 
their offense is, I mean, beyond the fact that they have some intriguing offensive personnel, I think their offense, when Harden's on the floor, is going to be totally fine. The defense is going to probably be more of a disaster for a bunch of different reasons. But I, you know, like, it, it is a really weird circumstance to kind of, kind of piece all this together. And the other a part of this that I think can't be discounted is the disaster potential is not necessarily like it, it's the worst thing in the world if your goal is for the Rockets to be competitive, obviously. But if a rebuild is in their future, there is a reason to maybe not be as bad as possible, but to be on the bad side of bad rather than yeah. to be like the vanilla version of bad. And right. I think that while for Westbrook, does, I mean, Westbrook is many things, but one of them in this current status, I would argue that he's more of a floor raiser than John Wall, who, you know, might not even be on the on the floor to raise that floor. Yep. But then the other part of it is, you know, like, yeah, if the defensive stuff doesn't work out and like, I mean, I, I had this discussion with Matt Moore on Real Jam Radio recently, which a little bit, well, I wanted to get into more, but we had to cover 30 teams in about the same amount of time we're doing 15, was um, I think their offense with, like, if they make a hearted trade, their offense completely falls apart. Like, they can do some sort of egalitarian thing, but I don't think they have the straw that stirs the drink now, I mean, unless John Wall is John Wall. So that's okay, like, if, if you're okay being bad. But it, it's an interesting question. I feel like Houston would be better off making a decision now to move him because I don't see this team as a title contender. I think there is a case for keeping him and seeing like if a team with a high draft pick emerges as potentially being interested in James Harden. Like I'm not taking the Nets deal though. Like, are you taking that Brooklyn Nets deal for James Harden? No, especially because I'm not high, as high on Karis LeVert as, as others are. Like, I think he's fine, but I don't think that he is your next superstar or anything like that. And the other big thing that can change is somebody's going to get more desperate. But that's just, that's just the way it, when, when teams aren't desperate right now, the odds are the number is going to go higher than it is. And so that could open up somebody bringing out an asset that we're not expecting or just a team coming out of the woodwork. I don't know exactly who that would be, especially when, I mean, the other way that it could swing is if Giannis signs this extension, then maybe somebody like Miami or Toronto or Dallas that's been hoarding their space, maybe they just completely go a different direction and say, well, we'll get into the mix now. That's a possibility too. Maybe you just get more suitors by winning. Well, we'll know on Giannis before the season starts. The problem with Miami is that Miami just doesn't have the assets to do this unless they move BAM. Like, well, I mean, they, they, they do like Tyler Hero. I would rather have Tyler Hero on his contract than Karis LeVert on his. It's just, it just doesn't seem like something Miami would want overall. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, the, but would there be a more interesting, like, culture? Like, like, we would find out the ultimate distillation of whether heat culture is real by how much James Harden changes and how much the heat change. That would actually be pretty interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually. And that's why. That's why I wanted. That's why I wanted to happen. But I don't think that it will. Yeah, and like Dallas, I don't think makes a ton of sense because I don't want to see Rick Carlisle like lose the very little hair he has left. Like that. That feels like a bad fit next to Luka Doncic, yeah. right? Okay, we should keep running though. We should keep running. We should absolutely keep running here. Uh, just real quick, let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with more in a second here. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection 
with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP hackers and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash gametheory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash gametheory. Okay, the Los Angeles Clippers are up next. The Clippers actually didn't do like a crazy amount. So this is going to be a situation where we talk about what does running it back look like. They traded Landry Shamit and Rodney Magruder for Luke Kennard and I believe four second round picks. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, they trade a future second rounder for Daniel Aturu. They uh, end up with Jay Scrub. They re-signed Patrick Patterson. They signed Marcus Morris to a four-year, $64 million deal. And they re-sign Serge Ibaka. Uh, they lose Jermichael Green, uh, which is probably not ideal for them, although they didn't quite utilize him in the way that I thought that they would last year. Uh, do you have any other, any other things I'm missing here with the Clippers that are they lost? Us? They lost Montrezl Harrell. They re-signed Reggie Jackson. And Doc Rivers is now no longer the coach. Ty Lue is the coach. Yeah, I'm working off of a list here that is our internal list from The Athletic. Yeah, uh, well, I did it. I did it from um, I did offseason grades with Nate for Dunk Dunk. So I, I just I'm just using that and then trying to remember what's happened since I did those. Um, excellent. But but so like, what's interesting about the Clippers is it's so funny because I was higher on them than a lot of people before last season. And then obviously what happened happened. And then it kind of felt like they were like they were it wasn't going in the disaster mode because they lost 
Harold, they lost Green, and then, you know, the, the Shaman thing is fine. It's, it's it's interesting. We'll talk about it. But then Serge Ibaka, like, if you, to me, if you look at the, what the Clippers gained and what they lost, I think they're a better playoff team. Maybe a worse regular season team just because of the, the, the overall quality they lost. But the reason why is because Ibaka makes life a lot easier on, on Ty Lue. Because it's like, okay, you could just throw him in there, and it makes a lot of sense. So all of the questions about, is Zubats good enough? Is he ready? Oh, crap, he's in foul trouble. What about Jermichael Green? Like, all of, the, all of the hair pulling that I did about Doc Rivers' rotation in the Clippers' playoff run last year, that stuff is a lot easier to manage when you have Serge Ibaka, who isn't a perfect player, but what he puts on the table, what he takes off, is easy to work with. Well, they needed a floor spacing big at the end of the day. Right. They needed someone that they could play at center who can actually play center defensively, who can also space the floor. Like they were not comfortable playing super small with Jamichael Green and Marcus Morris last year, it felt like. Yeah. And, and maybe that's a part of why, you know, Doc Rivers, Doc Rivers didn't do it. I thought that he should. I thought the very limited amount of time that they did was there. But like, yeah, it's. I think this is a better team. Like I'm just going to straight up say that like i think this is a better team now they fit better uh serge Ibaka is a better center than anything that they had last year luke Kennard is an enormous get for them luke Kennard is a much better basketball player than Landry shamit i think he is capable of doing the same things coming off of screens that Landry shamit is except he can also be an on-ball creator and an on-ball passer in a way that shamit is just incapable of like you can very easily pair luke Kennard with patrick beverly in the starting lineup and have a very competent backcourt next to paul george and Kawhi leonard in the front court like this is a real real dangerous roster now i think uh, i am I am very in on the Clippers this year again, even though I was last year too. The other possibility with Kennard, depending on how much Steve Ballmer is going to pay, is this kind of parallels the Josh Richardson thing we talked about before. Kennard is a pending restricted free agent. And if it works out or if they just want to, if Ballmer's going to pay, they could just keep him around. And I think that is a real benefit for the Clippers. Yes, it won't be at the same price as Shamit because Shamit was drafted later than Kennard. And so he has longer on a rookie scale contract. But I, my theory is that Kennard eventually replaces Lou Williams in the rotation as a yep. guy who might not always start and might not always close, but can do a little bit of both. And just depending on how the matchups are and everything like that. And like Lou Williams, Kennard is more of a regular season guy than a playoff guy due to his defensive limitations. But it's a lot easier to have that player on the future Clippers not be Lou Williams because of the equity he has with the organization. So I don't know whether that means Lawrence Frank trades Lou Will during the season. That wouldn't stun me when you consider the like the reporting that Bua had on that Jovan Bua had on the kind of the, the 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 rift within the Clippers. It wouldn't shock me if something like that happened. But also, it's just hedging your bets. You know, it didn't cost them that much to get Kennard. I like Shamit, but he wasn't really playing a ton. Also, he dealt with some weird physical stuff in terms of injuries and I believe COVID. I might be wrong on that. Um so yeah, I agree with you. I think they got I think they got better and it looked bad at one moment in time, but I think I think things are going to work out pretty well for them. Uh the final thing here would be the Marcus Morris deal. They signed him to a four year sixty four million dollar deal that I, I just don't even know like how that happens. Because it's so much more than what the mid-level is, which is what he would have gotten from any other contender. Like, is he really well, going to leave? Because they couldn't replace him. 
Like that, that was the whole, the whole thing. And it's, I mean, here's the other practical point. I had brought up the idea that maybe the Clippers want to stay a little bit more flexible because then they could have, they could have actually done some really interesting stuff in 21 if both Kawhi and Paul George had become unrestricted right. agents. But that would have involved a lot of feather ruffling. And, you know, it was basically like if Paul George leaves, then you can replace him. That's sort of an idea. But, that always kind of felt unlikely. You know, those guys both chose, like, in some ways, they both, like, wanted to be on the Clippers. And so, generally, you think that players are going to want to stick around. Um, and so, at that point, other than that, it's, it is really Steve Ballmer's money because the Clippers weren't going to have spending power anytime soon. So, it is, it is negative value. You know, I think that Morris is overpaid, but I don't think it's by a heinous amount because, I mean, he's, he's a starting caliber player right now. And starting caliber players at the forward position are hard to come by. I generally agree with that, but the problem is that Marcus Morris is also 31 years old already, and you're paying him yeah. now for 31, 32, 33, 34. And if Kawhi and Paul George do leave, which, you know, as we've kind of talked about, the only certainty in the NBA is uncertainty when it comes to player decisions, that becomes a very difficult deal to get off of. That is right. a, yeah, like I get that you have to keep him, but I would have probably pressed harder with Rich Paul, uh, especially given that you were losing Montrez Harrell. I probably would have pressed harder with Rich Paul and said, look, we're giving him 452 or something like that and trying to reduce this thing. But, you know, the Clippers brand right now is that they're just willing to pay for what they want, I guess. So um, yeah. it's not the worst thing in the world. Let's go to the Lakers. The Lakers traded Danny Green in the number 28 pick for Dennis Schroeder. They signed Wes Matthews. They signed Montrez Harrell. They re-signed Contavious Caldwell Pope to a three-year, $40 million deal with a partial guarantee in year three. They re-signed Marcus Morris. They trade JaVale McGee. Uh, they sign Mark Gasol to a $5.2 million deal. They waived Jordan Bell, who was acquired in that JaVale McGee deal. Uh, Costa Santaracupo re-signed uh, his two-way contract, and then they re-signed Jared Dudley as well. I believe that that's everything, right? Uh, I will note just uh, that you said Marcus Morris instead of Markeef, but Markeef, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you say Wes Matthews? I did say Wes, Wes Matthews, yeah. I think this Lakers it team lost, is... It got lost in the shuffle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that this Lakers team is better than they were last year. I did not love the idea of trading Danny Green and number 28 for Dennis Schroeder in a vacuum, but it's very clear that they knew that they were going to be able to retain KCP and then replace Danny Green with Wes Matthews. So because that they knew that they were very, very ready and able to get much better uh, in a hurry, because this team is a lot better than they were last season, I think now. I'll push back on that a little bit by adding a caveat. I think they got much better in the regular season. I think that, you know, Harrell... Harold and especially Harold and Gasol to the front court rotation that helps a lot. And getting Schroeder, you know, and then I mean the Schroeder plus you know the let's call it a, a net subtraction from Danny Green to Wes Matthews. Yeah, Danny Green missed a bunch of shots in the finals. So be it. Um, but here's my concern: the Lakers. So the, it's it's not did the Lakers get better or worse? It's use of resources. So my idea with the Lakers was you have the middle level exception whichever one they were going to choose to use. You have their draft pick. You have, theoretically, if they wanted to trade Kyle Kuzma, they, they don't have many ways to to reform this roster. Yeah. And they added a bunch of players who are good basketball players. But if we're accepting that the best form of the Lakers in most circumstances is LeBron at the four and Anthony Davis at the five, then and you think about that in those important lineups against the best teams... LeBron is going to have the ball in his hands 
just about all the time. I don't love the players they added in that context. I like them in almost every other context, but I don't love them in that one. And so the question is, how much do you value that context compared to every other one? In this season particularly, I think that you do value the other contexts because LeBron James and Anthony Davis are not going to want to play 70 games this year, right? And they need to at least tread water in the games where LeBron or Anthony Davis don't play. Getting Montrez Harrell, getting Marc Gasol allows them to do that in a way that I think is more capable basically like they're they're gonna have an easier time now uh treading water in those games i totally agree with you that like i don't expect montrose harrell to get many like minutes uh in important situations because i do not like pairing him with anthony davis uh it will make him better it will make the team worse i think uh Marcus All is like a valuable rim protector. Uh, he can't move in space anymore and, uh, he's a good ball mover and shooter, but like, uh, just having a body there at center, I think is valuable for the Lakers in a season where, uh, you're going to have to deal with load management. And I think that having another creator, uh, like a Dennis Schroeder is going to be really, really important in what is going to be the greatest load management season of all time. All, I think all that is completely fair. But will we care as much about all of that if Schroeder's not in the closing five, and, or at least not in their best five, let's put it that way, and Montrezl Harrell's barely seeing the floor, and the Lakers fall short of winning the title? And you're talking particularly like come playoff team. Come yeah, playoff. I'm talking I'm talking conference finals, NBA finals. The Lakers, I mean every every expectation that they will be in that group. I mean, I would say right now they're probably the favorites to win the title. And they definitely are in like I would assume in Vegas and all that. Um but it's like so so you have to think about that rarefied error because that's the whole point. But and here, that, here it's, would a, be it's my- an interesting question. Here'd be my point though. Like they didn't lose anything from their closing lineup. They're, they're essentially just replacing Danny Green with Wes Matthews, right? And they just added depth well, to be able to handle do the you, other minutes. Do you think that, do you think that they are, that Frank Vogel is going to A, see it that way? Because, you know, he has to put those players on the, on the, on and off the floor and that the players are okay with that. Like, there, there are all these complicated things. I mean, going back to like yeah, fair. Doc Rivers playing, oh yeah, the same guy, Montrez Harrell, last year in the playoffs, even though he should not have. Like that same issue could rear its head. And Well, the, the big problem there is too is that Rich Paul represents LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Kentavious Caldwell Pope, and Montrez Harrell. So, correct. And so like Harrell, like yeah. there's an interesting argument here that the person who got hurt the most by all this is Montrez Harrell because now he is – like he got overshadowed by another guy they brought in at his same position, and even though Harold's going to play more minutes and all that type of yeah. stuff, and he'll get he'll get his stuff to eat. Like the the weird thing about going if Harold was basically hunting regular season empty calories to boost his to boost himself for a future year, he should have gone to Charlotte. Yeah, because there you do that. And like, there's this weird thing that's like if you're going to get regular season empty calories. It's better to do it on a non-playoff team because the last thing people remember is you doing well. Yeah, Christian Wood and, just got paid. Like, <laughs> right? Like, there's 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 a real merit to that, and that and that. So with with Harrell, if what people remember is either, 
I mean, unless I'm wrong and he thrives in those, and that would be wonderful. I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to see players succeed. Unless unless that happens, the t- kind of the two most likely scenarios are he's not on the floor and the Lakers are doing well without him, or he is on the floor and maybe they win including him, but like it maybe it's like it looks like he's out of place. And it it is it's an interesting question. Like I don't I Harold, you can prioritize whatever you want. You can, you know, you can make whatever, but it's it is a challenging it's a challenging bet to have made. Here's the final thing that I'll bring up here uh with the Lakers before we move on. They do replace Rajon Rondo with Dennis Schroeder. Uh if we get playoff Rondo, Rondo is probably a better fit for them due to his passing and decision making than Dennis Schroeder. I would think you think the same, yeah, right? Play- Ron, the way Rondo played in the playoffs was better than I would expect Dennis Schroeder to do next year in the playoffs. However, it is also better than I would expect Rondo to do both next year in, the in playoffs. next year's playoffs yeah. or basically if you just re-rolled the dice. Like he was, he was great and full credit to him for being great. But if I had to predict that it happened again, I'd be like, Meh. yeah. And it's obviously uh, worth mentioning that they lose Avery Bradley as well. The last yes. thing here that I will say is that this team I think is now a bit better suited in terms of the contracts they have on this roster to execute a rather large trade uh, to get someone. Uh, they would have struggled last year to salary match uh, for bigger contracts. This year, they have enough of those mid-tier contracts and they have uh, an expiring one in Dennis Schroeder as well to be able to make a real enormous midseason move if they would want to. Yeah. The last thing, or uh, that, that'll be it with the Lakers. Let's move to Memphis. Memphis did not really do much this offseason, so this will be pretty simple. Uh, they, what is this weird three-team trade where, like, um, they got Mario Hazonia? Is that right? Yeah, I can explain it. So basically, the Grizzlies part of that deal was they traded two future seconds to get number 30, and they also picked up Mario Hazonia because the Blazers didn't want him. They draft Dennis or uh, Desmond Bain. They draft Xavier Tillman. They re-sign DeAnthony Melton. They like decline a team option and then bring back Jonte Porter. They re-sign John Conchar to a four-year, nine million dollar deal. Uh, they lose Josh Jackson. Did they lose anyone else on this roster? I don't know that they did. I mean, technically, uh, Anthony Tolliver is not going to be back, but. Yeah. So like this was a very quiet offseason for Memphis. Uh, Memphis got to where they got to very quickly last season. And I think that they were smart in kind of playing it patient and just seeing where John Morant and Jaron Jackson and Brandon Clark go uh, this coming season. Right. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have a they didn't have a ton of flexibility. But I thought the contracts they ended up with were reasonable. I think Melton's Melton's is fine. It's on the rich side, but I think it's fine. Jonte Porter, John Concher, those are you know totally totally fine deals as well. And you know Bain and Tillman better than I do, but I mean they functionally got the thirtieth pick for two seconds, which is generally good business. Yeah. And so if if Bain works out, then that's really nice. So like yeah, I really liked what Memphis did. They just didn't do a ton. Yeah, I had Desmond Bain at number 18, I think, on my board. So to get him for two second round picks is fucking fantastic work. 
Like, I think they did exceptional to do that. I had Xavier Tillman with a first round grade. So to go get him, I think was fantastic work. I will also note that I think Xavier Tillman is a tailor made fit long term for Jaron Jackson because of his rebounding ability and his ability to switch defensively. So and to play alongside him or to replace him? To play alongside him. Okay. Good to know. Like, if they want to play Jaron Jackson at the four, which I think that they probably do because it's a little bit easier to run guys off of like crazy off ball actions when they're playing the four, which Jaron Jackson does. Like, he runs off the screens and does all kind of crazy shit that six foot 11 guys can't do. Uh, I really like the big man mix now of Jaron Jackson, Brandon Clark, and uh, Xavier Tillman as long term players. I think that DeAnthony Melton deal is going to be a steal uh, to get him for four years, 36 million. And I think the Contra deal has a chance to be a steal. I'm not quite sure uh, necessarily if it'll play out that way, but I love the business that Memphis did this summer. They just didn't do a lot, and I think that that's probably worth uh, just stopping there on this. So, and that all that also gives us a little bit, well, not more time because we still need to move briskly through everyone else. Yeah, uh, Minnesota. They re-signed Wancho to a three-year $21 million deal. They re-signed Malik Beasley to a four-year $60 million deal. That is uh, a team option on four, on the fourth year. They did not end up with, uh, Ed Davis, did they? I can't remember how that. Yeah, they did. They, they will, they chose to, to bring him in. Yeah. Yeah. So they have Ed Davis, uh, for Jacob Evans, Amari Spellman, the future second. Uh, they traded number 17 in James Johnson for Ricky Rubio, number 25 and number 28. Uh, they took Leandro Bomaro following a draft day trade with, I want to say the, the Knicks. Knicks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they end up with Jaden McDaniels. They obviously draft Anthony Edwards, uh, and they reached like a non-guaranteed deal with Rondé Hollis Jefferson that I kind of sneaky like as well. Um, bizarre team, very strange looking team. Let's start with the, uh, Anthony Edwards pick. Like, would you have taken Anthony Edwards at number one? No. Where would you have taken Anthony Edwards? I had him third. Um, okay. I think that his, his, you know, physical potential is, I mean, what, I thought that there was kind of a line between him and some of the other ones. And now I didn't see everyone, you know, the, the kind of the Neesmith, Devin Vassell class, like those kind of guys. But I'm guessing I probably would have ended up with Edwards third just because there's a change, like, especially like one of the reasons he was so inefficient at Georgia was he was taking terrible shots. But there are a couple different ways that guys take terrible shots. And one of them could just be they kind of wanted him to. And so I think there's a more efficient player inside of Anthony Edwards. And so that plus, you know, he could conceptually be good at defense and all that. Like that made him better than the kind of the rest. But I had him the weakest of that top three. Yeah, I had him at three as well. I would not have gone this direction necessarily, but uh, nonetheless, the Minnesota Timberwolves chose to. He is theoretically the best fit with. Carl Towns and D'Angelo Russell from a positional perspective, although all three of those guys have proven to be very apathetic defenders throughout the course of their career. It made it all the more curious to me, though, that they took Anthony Edwards after they re-signed Malik Beasley to a four-year $60 million deal. Malik Beasley is dealing with like very serious legal allegations right now. Uh, to give him three years, $45 million guaranteed is... I, I, I can't even fathom doing that. That is absolutely crazy to me. It's the kind of contract that we could have expected for Beasley if you just if you you had to sign him on the last day pre bubble 
and just said, okay, great. You saw him for eight games or whatever the heck it was. And what is he worth right now? And ignored everything that happened after that, both on both in terms of their roster and, of course, the off-the-court issues. And you just drafted a guy that is going to push Malik Beasley to the bench. You cannot play all four of Anthony Edwards, Malik Beasley, D'Angelo Russell, and Carl Anthony Towns and not expect to give up 125 points per 100 possessions. Like... I, that is the first, like, completely. I understand the process behind trading for D'Angelo Russell. I didn't love it, but I understood it. Um, I didn't love taking Anthony Edwards at one, but I understood it, right? Um, Malik Beasley's the first move that Gerson Rosas has made where I'm like, okay, this is a dumbfounding decision. A real challenge. I mean, there's, a, but to go back to something you said about Marcus Morris, it's also. Who in the world was going to give him this contract? Yeah. Like the I, I have no idea. And when you consider like the, the, the one of my biggest problems with Minnesota's offseason, and I have, I have a bunch of them, is they're now incredibly like limited in terms of their flexibility, spending power, all that kind of fun stuff. Not only for the coming year, but for, for the following year. Like they didn't even get to use the mid-level exception this year because they had so much other stuff and because they're not going to pay the luxury tax for a team that is this week so okay where do things go from here and like if for example they traded james johnson and rubio for rubio rubio is a good player he will make them better not that much better but better but he's also paid 17 million for next year so that means now the wolves can't really spend next year either and so they're really tied up now for two years and the other just and i i hate you know pushing all this stuff you know the way that everybody's kind of looking miles ahead of where we are, but if they're pretty much this team for two years, then that means we're, we're if we're kind of thinking, okay, 22 is when they can really start making moves. Carl Anthony Towns will be two years away from unrestricted free agency at that point. Oh yeah. That, that is like, they are going to have to move him if they don't make the playoffs within the next two years and don't look like they are anywhere near it. Like if they're nowhere near the mark, He's probably going to ask for a trade in 2022, I would think. Like, what? I don't, I just, it's. And it's also like, I mean, Towns, it's possible that he, you know, qualifies for the Supermax and that maybe he would want to do something like that. But it's, it's also, if the team isn't going to be super good, then that makes it, it makes it harder to get on an all NBA team. And it's, it's, I just think they're, they're in a really bad situation and not all of that is Rosas's fault. More of it is Glenn Taylor's fault than anything else, but they're still there and it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. Uh, we don't think this team is anywhere near a playoff team next year, right? I mean, not, in, not in this West. I mean, there's a chance that their offense is quite good, but how in the world are they going to defend? Yeah, like they're relying wholly on Josh Kogi and Jared Culver. Like, like they have their forward defense is astonishing. I mean, they they you know, maybe like that like Rondé Hollis Jefferson maybe should start for them and they got him on a minimum non-guaranteed deal. And I like Rondé, but Rondé Hollis Jefferson should not start on a team that wants to be good. Yeah, and like I didn't hate the Wancho deal. Maybe maybe this is where we end positively. I didn't hate the Wancho deal. Yeah, Three especially years, with a partial, million. partially yeah. guaranteed third year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally fine with it. But this is not a good team. Like, this is 
going to be a bad team. Well, and, it, and so I guess maybe the upside is at some point, maybe Jaden McDaniels can take on some of this role, but it's going to take him time. It always takes guys time. Yeah, he's two years away. Like he's not ready to play a part of a winning team yet. So yeah, no, I am uh, not excited by the Minnesota Timberwolves right now. Uh, the New Orleans Pelicans. The Pelicans did a lot of little things. They traded for Steven Adams, which is curious to me for a number of reasons, but they traded for him and then signed him to a two-year $35 million extension. So he is a New Orleans Pelican for three more years. They re-signed Brandon Ingram to a five-year $158 million deal. They signed Wenyan Gabriel. They signed Willie Ernan Gomez and Sidarius Thornwell. They lose Frank Jackson, Etwan Moore, Derek Favors, and Jaleel Okafor. Um, they traded the number 24 pick for a 2023 first round pick. Obviously they lose Drew Holiday is the big move here as well. Um, they essentially traded Drew Holiday for three first rounders and two pick swaps, uh, as well as Eric Bledsoe, George Hill. Weird offseason for New Orleans, but they're still in like the growing and molding. Uh, this roster around Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, and Lonzo Ball uh, kind of mode. So I don't hate it, but the Steven Adams move was curious to me. Not only trading for Steven Adams, and remember, they gave up the first-round pick that they um, acquired in the RJ Hampton deal in the Steven Adams deal. So they um, that is another kind of challenge yeah. of this. Is that they functionally that they gave up they gave up first for Adams and then extended him two years thirty five million. I personally viscerally dislike the Adams Zion fit, even though I like both of them as players. And yeah. the way that I've described this, I've you know it, it'd be fun. I'd love to have a conversation with David Griffin about it. Um, but the way that I've articulated the problem I have is that like people said, oh, Stephen Adams is a good screener, all this sort of stuff. It's like yeah. The problem isn't with the guy in the screening action. It's with the big man who is not. And yeah. so if Steven Ad- if you're setting a high pick and roll with Zion Williamson and point guard X, then where is Steven Adams and what is his defense, the guy defending him doing? And so the problem is when you have a player who doesn't space the floor and Zion on the floor together is that the guy defending Steven Adams, when that high pick and roll happens, that player is going to be in the paint gumming up the works because, yeah, okay, maybe you could do a dump off to Steven Adams. First of all, that big man is still there, not a big deal. And it's not like Steven Adams is really going to make you pay enough. So that means it's more bodies for Zion and Kyra Lewis or Bled or whoever to, to deal with. But it's also an additional potential for injury for Zion. That's something that I'm concerned about. And like also, Steven Adams, he's... You know he's been in the league forever. He's been a part of some really good defensive teams, but I don't. I, I don't think that he is Rudy Gobert. I don't think that he is so undeniably great at the other stuff to justify it. Yeah, I love Stephen Adams as a player and like as a human being. I really don't like this fit. Uh, I, I and don't. To, and really... to double down on it by committing, like they could have easily traded for him. And then it worked or didn't work, and then you just sign him after that. But to say, okay, we're committing to this now with what might be a negative value extension is another mistake. It's a mistake compounding a mistake. I just, like, don't really get it. Like, <sighs> Well, I mean, but here's the thing. David Griffin has evaluated the big men position pretty consistently this sort of way, that he wanted 
Because they drafted Jackson Hayes. That's what I was going to say. You just drafted Jackson Hayes. Like, they, that's, for, for better or for worse, and I have a very strong opinion about which way it is, that that he wants to play that kind of player next to Zion Williamson. He has devoted significant resources at this point to doing so. And that is telling. And I think he's wrong. But the other part of this, and that's why, you know, like I think New Orleans still had a successful offseason is they got a haul for Drew Holiday. Now, it is a weird kind of like, if you want to think about it as a portfolio, it is a weird portfolio because the Bucks could end up being very good for this time, and the Bucks certainly hope to. But I I think there is way more upside in this for New Orleans than the Lakers picks for, by virtue of the Bucks are a less consistent organization historically. They yeah. don't, you know, like Anthony Davis is signed for a while now too. Like you have a lot of this kind of stuff lined up. And also just because like, while there's a very distinct chance that Giannis resigns, it has not happened yet. And it had not happened as of the time of that. And also the Bucks are older and they're like, they're going to probably be more fragile. And yeah, Giannis is amazing and he's unbelievable. And as long as he's there, they're going to be a damn good team, but we don't know how long that's going to be. And so like, I think these, like, so there's this question about like Nate and I got into this a little while ago about what is the best traded pick asset in the league. I don't think the Bucks picks are there now, but I think they could be. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually totally agree with that. You could tell me that 2027 first rounder for Milwaukee is like a number two overall pick at some point, And that would not be stunning by any stretch of the and imagination. And it could have been that the Bucks had an amazing run between now and then. Like there are ways yeah. that this could work out beautifully for Milwaukee. And that pick is still amazing. Yeah. Like there is a chance that Milwaukee wins the 2021 NBA title. And that the pick still ends up being the number two overall pick. And it will have been 100% worth it for Milwaukee because they won Absolutely. a title in 2021. Like, that's okay. It's just that these picks have a chance to be very, very valuable. Um, I don't love this roster at all. Like, I think it's an in, I don't think they're done making moves over the course of the next year with this roster. Like, Eric Bledsoe is basically going to have to start next to Lonzo now, right? And yeah, it, it's a it's a very weird roster. You're but essentially starting the, Eric Bledsoe, Lonzo, Brandon Ingram, Zion, and Stephen Adams. I mean, maybe they start Redick and have one of those guys come off the bench, but then that brings a bunch of questions too. And Bledsoe is weird because I think that he wasn't a good fit for the Bucks because he's not that he's not that kind of player. Like the last two rounds of the playoffs, or in this case, the second round, he's not that guy, especially not in Bud Boonholzer's system. But He's a lot better than that. And so it'll be yeah. interesting. Like, I think, like, Eric Bledsoe is still a very good basketball player. I think he could look great this year. And yeah. New Orleans, like, I don't think they have the, I don't think they're going to be a second through fourth round of the playoffs team. So maybe he gets that. And so, like, there are a lot of things about New Orleans that I like, but I don't like how it all fits together. And so maybe that ends up working. Maybe it doesn't work, but it doesn't affect it too much. And that's why the Adams thing is frustrating is because they could have been like, it could have been so much closer. Like if it doesn't work out, they could have been more flexible and they're not. The Oklahoma city thunder did so many things this summer (laughs) that I'm just going to read who is now on their roster. (laughs) That's, that's probably the best way to do it. Uh, Lou Dort, Admiral Schofield is somehow on this roster. I didn't even know that. Uh, TJ Leaf, Josh Hall is on a two-way. Trevor Ariza, Justin Jackson, Kenrich Williams, George Hill, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Alexei Pokyshevsky, 
Mike Muscala, Hamadou Diallo, Frank Jackson, Darius Miller, Darius Baisley, Omir Yurtsevin, Isaiah Roby, and Ty Jerome. They also obviously have how many first rounders that they've acquired? Like eight? I think they got, I have it that they got three this year, but then they have a bunch of them from other stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. They got, oh, I would have guessed four. So yeah, because then, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, because they got one for Kelly Oubre. They got one for Steven Adams. They got one for Chris Paul. Um, Chris Paul. And then I was like, oh, and one from Philly. So you're right. They got four because they got the one from Philly as well. Yeah. And then in the eight, I was including Pukyshevsky, which they acquired. And, uh, who's the other one that they acquired? Why is my brain breaking? Uh, maybe no one else. It might not have been another one. I might have just overestimated. Um, look, this is a total rebuild. They got some high upside picks. Uh, what do you, how well do you think they did in the Chris Paul deal? I think they did really well. I mean, not only did they get an asset in that first round pick, but they also got players that were good enough. Like they got Ty Jerome who could help them. And they also got players who, one, they already moved for positive value. And actually both of which Rubio and Ubre. So yeah, I thought they did very well. I thought they did very well as well. Uh, Ty Jerome is a former first round pick that I think, uh, has a chance to be a good rotation player long term. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was a fine performance. They were interested in Alexei Pukashevsky, as I've said on this podcast for a long time, and they moved up and got their guy. He is a super high upside player and the kind of player that teams like this should be taking swings on at the end of the day. They have Shea Gilgis Alexander as a building block, who is a top 10 rookie contract asset in the NBA now that some guys have graduated. Uh, they have Pukashevsky, who can be a super high upside player. If Darius Baisley, who is very interesting, they have Lou Dort, who frankly, like I would be canvassing the market to see what I could get for Lou Dort because I don't really see a ton of use for him on this roster. Um, and I bet you that a team would be interested in giving up like a semi real asset, especially if he plays well early this season. Uh, yeah, Oklahoma City did well or as well as humanly possibly could be done in tearing down an entire roster. Agreed. And the only thing that I didn't love was I didn't think they squeezed Philly hard enough in the Horford Danny Green deal. I was going to mention that as well. Al Horford's, yeah. Al Horford's contract, you know, yes, Philly was selling at the bottom of his value in all likelihood, but they were still selling at the bottom in Philly. Basically, Philly was leveraged and Sam Presti didn't use that in the same way that he did with the Clippers and the Paul George deal. And I don't think it's going to like, kill them and i also don't think that philly had really any blue chip stuff yeah sure it would have been great to get some of the maybe one maybe one of their young guys that would have been really interesting to kind of to get something else maybe maybe you could have gotten tybal in that matisse tybal in that deal that would have been that would have made me love it um just yeah. to get another good player but overall i mean the volume of the volume of resources that they got back and the other, the single craziest part to me about Oklahoma City's situation is that the cycle hasn't finished yet. Like, so a lot of times you take on these assets more like the Danny Green Al Horford deal, where you get back, like you kind of you end the chain with a toxic asset. No, right now, so like earlier on in this in this chain, they had Rubio and Ubre, who they moved. Now they still have Ariza, totally reasonable contract. George Hill, totally reasonable contract. And so, like, they can still do something else with those guys, whether it's use them as a mechanism to take on bad money, get a, a very marginal asset for them now or later. It, it, 
it's to to be able to do that without saddling your books is totally ridiculous. Like I thought that I thought that Presti did a really good job, not a perfect job, but an excellent one. The Phoenix Suns, I think, probably got better than any team in the NBA this summer. They acquired Chris Paul in that Ricky Rubio, Kelly Oubre, Ty Jerome, Jalen LeCue in a 2022 first round deal. Uh, they drafted Jalen Smith, which I didn't love, but whatever. Uh, it's small potatoes in the context of this summer. They signed Jay Crowder to a three-year, $29 million contract. They re-signed Dario Saric to a three-year, $27 million contract. Uh, they got Tyshawn Alexander on a two-way deal, which I really like. They got uh, Etwan Moore on a $2.3 million vet minimum, which I really like. They signed Langston Galloway on a one-year $3.6 million deal with the biannual exception, and they re-signed Javon Carter. I just love it. Like I, I think that it is uh it is really genuinely a very, very impressive summer that is gonna see them morph into not just a playoff team, but like a dangerous playoff team. I'm very positive, a little bit less positive than you. Um, I think that they got deeper, which is a big help. Adding Jay Crowder to the to the forward rotation is great. Um, I two two things that that kind of stick in my craw a little bit. So one is their center depth is still makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, Bain's got a contract that you know they, and an opportunity that they couldn't have matched. So it's not like oh they made a mistake there, but that could end up being a limitation. And the other one is it's a stylistic thing, and that's the way Chris Paul plays. I'm not going to say wants to play. I'm going to say the way he plays because he plays is very different from what made me so excited about the Suns last year. And so how the creative tension that leads to the Suns team, that that might lead to some, let's call them inefficiencies. Like it, it's just going to lead to the Suns being different. And so that could work out well. It could be a little bit dicey, but I, you know, I love Chris Paul. I've, I've been on board with that for a long time now. So I think there's some, I'm a little bit more cautious than you, but I am very positive. It's, it, I am cautious. Like, don't get me wrong. Like I am, uh, like I'm not like diving a thousand percent in with the Phoenix Suns, but Chris Paul and Devin Booker, that's maybe the best backcourt in the NBA. It's in the shortlist at bare minimum. Yeah. Like those two pairing together is an unbelievable backcourt. I think that Chris Paul is really going to help DeAndre Ayton develop defensively. DeAndre took a leap last year defensively to where I'm not going to sit here and say he was like a good defender, but if the line is average, I think he was like just a tick like past the average line in terms of what he was defensively last year. Uh, he moved his feet really well. He was a much better contester around the basket. He was much better rotationally than what he was as a rookie, but he still has a little bit of room to grow there. Overall, it was just a really, really big improvement. And I think that being able to operate and ball screen defense with Chris Paul, who can hopefully teach him uh, gap defense a little bit better. Like, I think that that stuff really matters. I think it's really, really going to help him. Um, they have better lineup versatility. Now with Jay Crowder, they can go big, they can go small. Uh, yeah, they lose Aaron Baines and they lose like a real backup center. But yeah, like this, this is a real, this team is a real threat in my opinion. Uh, and that's before we even talk about Mikhail Bridges being just like an absolute monster defensively, who is going to really translate, uh, at the NBA level, in my opinion. It has already, I guess, is the fairest way to put it. Mm -hmm. Let's move to Portland. This was kind of a quiet, other than like the Robert Covington move summer. Um, 
They acquired Robert Covington for Trevor Ariza and two first round picks. They reacquired Ennis Cantor for reasons beyond my comprehension. Uh, they re-signed Rodney Hood in a curious series of moves where he declined his player option and then they re-signed him to a two-year $21 million deal with the second year non-guaranteed. They signed Derek Jones to a two-year $19 million deal. They signed Harry Giles to a one-year deal. Uh, re-signed Carmelo Anthony. I love this offseason from Portland and think they are also like a very real contender to finish like fifth in the Eastern Con- or in the Western Conference next year. I I really like it. Kind of paralleling the Suns, I I the, the little bit of caution that I have is one, how are they going to how is Terry Stotts going to utilize all this? Like you have a lot of players that I like, but getting the combinations and permutations right is going to be a challenge. And then the other one is, well, I'm fine with the Covington deal. You know, they gave up some real assets. This is, again, a really big bet by Neil O'Shea on his evaluation of kind of like bench guys, because you think about that they used all these resources for the front court, and their front court got a lot better. Like, I mean, getting, getting Covington, getting all these other players. But the challenge is, well, not, not necessarily health because Lillard and McCollum have been rocks, but this is a lot on Anthony Simons. If they're, if we're really talking about them being high level, like they have to stay healthy in the backcourt and they have to be good. Yes. That is a big bet on Anthony Simons and it's a big bet on Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum staying healthy. That's largely happened though throughout the course of their career, right? Like we should feel okay about betting on that, right? Yeah. I mean, but it's, it's just even in the minutes they sit and you know, like all, all those kind of, it's, there aren't even options really back there. It's no, there are kind of like they don't even have like these Shabazz Napiers, the like some of the like pack on like they've found some real value on the margins in those in other years. They don't even have lottery tickets in the backcourt right now. But I think those would be easy to go out and acquire uh, on the trade, sure. like on the trade market. Like they have this Rodney Hood deal now, which is actually a very valuable trade asset for another team. It it is. Um, I especially like that's the nice thing about having Covington on a valuable contract for next year is that theoretically, you know, it, depending on what happens with Zach Collins and his extension, there could be something there. But I I don't think that's how and why the Blazers did this. I think they're going to no. run into the issue where Hood finishes the year on Portland and then you don't pick up the non guarantee and then you just kind of see where things go. Yeah, I think that that's the most likely outcome here. But I also. Really like taking a shot on Derek Jones. He provides the yes. defensive athleticism that they really need. Um, and Robert Covington does that as well. And Robert Covington is going to be a much better fit in this drop coverage scheme than he was in Houston's switching scheme because he's so ridiculous away from the ball. They can play him at the four next to Nurkic at the five, and he's just going to wreak havoc on the backside, in my opinion. Like well, this and is- having having Derek Jones also theoretically. I mean, first of all, if they're playing a team that doesn't have a good wing score, it's going to be even better. But if they're playing a team that does, theoretically, their best five in certain circumstances is going to be probably Derek Jones checking that guy and then Covington still being that kind of free safety who's just going wherever he needs to go to muck up whatever the other team wants to do. Like Covington, part of the other reason he was miscast in Houston was at times he was kind of their stopper. And that's not what he's best at. So I, I think that Covington is in a good situation to succeed. I, I, again, that's another thing I like about what Portland did. And then the last thing I'll mention here is Harry Giles. Uh, Harry Giles to a one year minimum deal is a really smart gamble from them, I think, because he has really real dexterity and passing and dribble handoff ability. Like 
that's a perfect backup center for them, uh, especially if they want to keep playing Zach Collins at the four, which some of these moves make it a little bit less likely that they play Zach Collins at the four, I think. But Harry Giles is a really good fit with what in they with what, uh, what they run. The last thing, uh, or second to last team, third to last team, second to last third team. Third to last. We have three more. The Sacramento Kings. They didn't really do a crazy amount, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on them. They draft Tyrese Halliburton, Robert Woodard, and Jamias Ramsey. They uh, bring Alvin Gentry as a, in as an associate head coach, which I think is like maybe the most valuable thing that they did. Uh, they sign Glenn Robinson the third to a partial guaranteed deal. They re-sign uh, Daquan Jeffries to a two-year, $3 million deal. They brought in Hassan Whiteside on a one-year minimum. That's all that they did, right? Um, did you mention GR th- Glenn Robinson the third? I did. Yeah. Okay. Like, um, so no, the, the other important thing, I mean, so there, there are two other things you could argue is more valuable than Gentry. One is Vlade Divac is no longer making their personnel decisions. Monty McNair is, is much yeah. more capable of doing that. And while I didn't love everything about Sacramento's offseason, having McNair at the helm is, is an important plus. And then Tyrese Halliburton. I mean, that Halliburton falling to 12 is more good fortune than amazing drafting. But I mean, I, I had, I didn't see, everybody but i had a halliburton god did i have him fourth i think i did well i, I so will tell you i think that they kind of finagled that a little bit entirely possible yeah like the the impression i've gathered is that like the halliburton camp thought that was a good landing spot and like and it is didn't work out with phoenix and like didn't work out with like the wizards and stuff like that so like make that the soft landing spot a little bit. I, I will be angry if, if Halliburton ends up being good. I will be angry at the Suns for not drafting him for a decade. <laughs> because yeah. like I loved like the Halliburton, like I didn't think he was going to fall far enough to make that a possibility. And I sold myself so hard on Halliburton Booker, even with Chris Paul. And then it's yeah. just, I, I kind of, especially with Chris Paul, where you give Halliburton a little bit of time to develop and then it just getting taken away so they could draft a backup center was crushing but their loss sacramento's game the obvious move that we have to discuss here is bogdan bogdanovich as well uh look i would have matched this deal i think you would have as well right yes yeah like it's a no-brainer match uh i i get that like you it, well, uh, move it's not on. a no-brainer i don't think it's a no-brainer match i think that it is a match because that's a lot of money for bogdanovich who you know like yeah. this is this is the type of contract that is reasonable, and reasonable contracts actually have a larger chance of failing than you think for players yeah. who might not have a ton of untapped potential. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable, but you got to keep the asset at the end of the day. Like, you, you right, just absolutely he's, he's, have to keep the asset. Like, you could potentially move him a year from now for a team that wants help. And that, like, it's agreed, agreed, especially when Sacramento's not doing anything else with this. Like, they ended up getting real value on the margins with Hassan Whiteside and Glenn Robinson III and some of the other stuff. But they, the, the opportunity cost of bringing him back is pretty low. Like, Milwaukee is not going away from wanting Bogdan Bogdanovich, right? Like, <laughs> this is, this is not going to change in a year from now. Like, they would have been able to try and squeeze Milwaukee for assets long term right yeah that's really it like sacramento didn't do a crazy amount they're probably not a playoff team this year so let's uh move on the san antonio spurs again not a team that did a crazy amount but i liked what they did uh drafted devin vassell and trey jones both of whom i had as top 20 guys devin vassell i think i had an 11 or 12 um 
they guarantee Trey Lyles deal, which like whatever. They signed Drew Eubanks to a three-year minimum deal, which whatever, right? They've re-signed Jakob Pertl to a three-year, $27 million deal, and I really like that move. Uh, other than that, I, again, think that this was a quiet offseason for them where I don't see anything else. Do you have anything else? I mean, we'll have to see how their picks work out. I've heard very good things about Vassell, so I'm excited about that. Quindary Witherspoon I like on a two-way. And yeah, I mean, I think this, I think that the Pirtle deal is more fair than amazing just because yeah. I don't, you know, it's, it's the, the idea you and I talk about this a lot with Biggs of like, will he be a top 10 center in the league? Probably not, but you're not paying him like that. So that's, it's totally fine. Like I would much rather give Pirtle this contract than let's say Mason Plumlee, even though Mason Plumlee is an accomplished center in for of what he does so yeah i'm totally fine with san antonio's offseason and if vassell and trey jones end up being good then i'll love it yeah and look their moves are going to come in season like someone is probably going to pay them to acquire lamarcus aldridge at some point i would venture someone is going to pay them to acquire demar Derozan at some point uh assuming that they're not a playoff team i don't think this team will be a playoff team but they could be close uh We'll see what they do. Like, I feel like this offseason is almost like an incomplete grade because they didn't move their two big pieces yet, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. The Utah Jazz are the last team here. Mike Conley opted into his deal. Uh, they took Yudoka Azubuke with the 27th overall pick. They moved Tony Bradley for the 38th overall pick. They acquired Elijah Hughes in the second round. Um I believe that they retained Jarrell Brantley somehow. Uh, they signed Derek Favors to the three-year $27 million deal. They signed Jordan Clarkson to a four-year $52 million deal. Um, yeah, they re-signed Brantley to a two-way. They signed Trent Forrest to a two-way. They moved Rajon Tucker uh, in order to just get off of that roster spot. And then the big one is obviously that they signed Donovan Mitchell to the five-year $163 million extension. I like don't love this offseason really for utah uh how do you feel about it i don't love it either i mean the biggest thing is actually giving mitchell that player option i think that that potentially it gives him a lot of leverage it means that he could leave a year earlier there was no reason to give that to mitchell he's not anthony davis he's not jason tatum you know like as much as i like donovan he's just he hasn't been that player yet and well, didn't like have here, that kind of leverage here's the other thing on it too gordon hayward like they went through this a few years ago with Gordon Hayward, where they let him test the market and he ended up only on a three-year deal essentially with that player option on the fourth, or was it just a straight three-year deal? I can't remember. No, that was a three plus one. Yeah. Three plus one. Like losing that extra year of value really matters. It really genuinely matters. So losing Donovan Mitchell's uh, fifth year on that rookie de- or on that rookie extension is enormous for them. Yeah, absolutely. And they paid Jordan Clarkson a lot of money. I think that he is useful for them, but that, you know, it, depending on how the new ownership is willing to, you know, really willing to pay the tax, like it's another one of those kind of like the Monte Morris one I talked about before, where it's like, it's not a bad deal, but in the context of everything else, it might be thorny later on. I think that's Derek a pretty Favors, bad deal. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. Uh, I, Derek, I would Derek, much rather have done like a one year, $20 million deal. Like, does he not agree to that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, he, he probably does. And then with favors, like it, it's, not a terrible one, but it it seems like they gave him more than the market was going to bear, and giving him a player option on the third year that gives Favors more control. And yeah, there are ways that they could, that that the Jazz can use him, and and he can help, and he's kind of overqualified if they want to, you know, like kind of play him with Gobert and then have him sit. Like you know, like there are a lot of different ways they can do this. But again, like 
is is that really gonna you know build their asset base get get them younger and better and all that eh, not really and so it's it's not i just i just didn't really love their offseason it's not terrible it's not gonna ruin them or anything yeah. like that and i don't know that they needed like one of the ways of thinking about favors is as a hedge for a gobert maybe but i don't think they needed to give that money to favors right now for that purpose and then draft Yudoka as a bouquet as well right like, that's your hedge. You use the 27th overall pick on Yudoka Azubuke to not sign or use any of these assets, the mid-level or the draft pick, on, like, a defensive wing seems like a mistake to me. Uh They had a chance to actually shore up their wing defense. And look, they have Royce O'Neal. Like, Ingles is not a terrible defender. Like, he's just slow-footed, but he's really smart and he knows where he needs to be. Uh Donovan Mitchell can be a good defender who can move up the lineup a little bit uh, at times, but they needed another guy who can guard wings and they did not get that. And that's, I think my biggest concern for them. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, that's through 15. Danny, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life, man. <laughs> uh, written works at the athletic. Um, you can you can get everything there. Have a piece coming up. I've I, you know I'll have stuff pretty much throughout the remaining off season. Going to probably do an extension preview series next week. We'll see how that works out. Um, and then audio real gym radio is once a week. Sam is a frequent guest and much appreciated guest. Then uh, dunked on. We do one public episode a week and four subscription. That's called dunked on Prime. Now you can check that out. And then. You can, I mean, during the year, I I have many projects, some of which are announced, some of which are not, and you can keep an eye on that. Go follow Danny. He is one of the best in the business at this and just a terrific human being in general. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We will be back next week with NBA win total over-unders, but until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.